Hello, and welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. This is your host, Dr. Sean T. Lorden, and author of The 11 Winning Secrets to Stop Aging in Its Tracks. Enjoy the show. I am the host, Sean Lorden. I am the owner of Concierge PT and uh, the host of this podcast, Hooked on Health. And today we've got Dr. Phil Leahy, the fourth of Worcester County Orthopedics, and I will let him uh, do the honor of introducing himself. Yeah, hello everybody. Uh, Phil Leahy here. I'm um, an orthopedic surgeon uh, working at St. Vincent Hospital. We have a private practice. I'm part of a small group practice uh, with uh, Dr. Chris Vinton and uh, myself and very until very recently, my father, uh, the other Dr. Phil Leahy, uh, who just about six weeks ago uh, retired. <laughs> so congratulations to him. Uh, he, uh, he, he's been an orthopedic surgeon in Worcester since 1979 uh, and uh, was the team doctor for Holy Cross Athletics starting in about 1980. And so he has kind of a long legacy of uh, providing orthopedic care for the community and helping out up at Holy Cross. And I'm, I feel incredibly lucky and fortunate to be able to kind of follow in his footsteps. It was uh, great working with him for the last seven years. And, uh, uh, you know, he certainly leaves some big shoes to fill, but, uh, but it was a great honor to work with him. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, we had a great time working together. Um, and he, you know, the funny thing is my grandfather was also an orthopedic surgeon even before him. So he got the <laughs> chance to do the same thing with his dad. So it's, it's kind of a cool family connection. That's a great legacy. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah, so, so just like a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm from Worcester. I grew up here. I went to St. John's, as Sean did, fellow pioneer. Uh, went to Cornell up in upstate New York for college and uh, Tufts Medical School in Boston for medical school for my MD. Uh, after that, I uh, kind of bounced around in my training, went to the Mayo Clinic uh, for a year of surgical internship, did my orthopedic uh, residency training in, in New York City in Brooklyn at a hospital called Maimonides Medical Center big hospital in Brooklyn, and then did my sports medicine uh, fellowship, which is some additional specialty training in arthroscopy and sports medicine at Brown University uh, down in Providence. And then finally uh, came back here and, uh, and joined the practice with my father and, and Dr. Vin. So uh, Phil, give people an idea of how long total that is, just so they, they know. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, if you include everything, so like when I was 18, basically I left Worcester to go to college and I didn't get back until I was 36. So basically half my life I spent, uh, you know, going to college, medical school, uh, residency training and additional fellowship training. So yeah, it's four years of college, four years of medical school. Um, and then I did six years of residency. Uh, you can do five in some programs, but I did an additional research year. So I did six years of residency training and then an additional seventh year for my sports medicine. Uh, so a lot, a lot, it took a while. It takes, takes a long time, but it's worth it in the end. And I think uh, you don't think it's very much older, Phil, by now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would hope so by now. I hope I can at least talk about it a little bit. Uh, and it, the shoulder problems, it's great talking about it because it's a very common issue. It's one of the, one of the big things that I treat uh, every day. Uh, and so it's, a, it's one of the more common problems that we see people have uh, out there. Yeah, so go ahead and dive right into. Uh, I know I sent you a bunch of questions, but uh, yeah, start maybe at the top of the list or just. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing we were just talking about this. Um, you know, right before this uh, this call, but uh, you know, talk about you know when people present to your office and they've got shoulder pain, kind of walk through what that looks like and and just give us give like 
the audience an idea of what you're looking for and, and kind of how your brain goes about diagnosing? Yeah. So, you know, the shoulder can be uh, confusing, uh, you know, certainly to the patients, uh, but can be challenging even for us as the doctors to kind of figure out, okay, so what's, what's going on when people talk about shoulder pain, sometimes they're talking about pain up, up here, you know, they call this their shoulder and it's really actually their neck or they call, you know, something down here, their shoulder, and it's kind of closer to their elbow. So first we try to figure out where really is the problem. And if it, if it truly is sort of in this area, um, then we start to kind of focus in and listen to the story. And so, you know, one of the things I've always learned uh, is that listening to the patient is really important and you got to take the time to allow them to tell you uh, what's going on. It's hard because you know we have a short time frame with the patient. We got about 15 minutes to kind of get through uh, listening to the patient, doing physical exam, talking about a plan, all that stuff. So we have a very limited amount of time, but I, I really try to let the patient tell me what's going on and a lot of good information come out of that. So the story of how their pain started is often maybe one of the most important parts of the puzzle. Um, when patients say that, hey, my shoulder was completely fine until three weeks ago when I slept on the ice and fell. Uh, and it's just never been the same since I've been having a lot of pain, weakness, you know, problems since I fell that keys me into a certain kind of traumatic shoulder injury. That's a little bit of a different way of thinking than people who come in and say, you know, over the last year, you know, six months, nine months, um, my shoulders gradually become more and more sore with certain movements. I've noticed it's kind of achy when I do certain things or, it's gradually become very painful, but it's been a slow buildup over the course of months or even years. Um, that gets my thinking in a totally different mindset where I start to think about degenerative changes, you know, kind of the wearing down of the shoulder uh, joint. Um, so, I mean, I guess we can kind of talk about those two, where I go from there. So with degenerative changes, you know, we kind of have to start thinking, is this arthritis or is this a degenerative rotator cuff injury? Uh, or is it something else like the labrum or biceps tendon, um, arthritis at the AC joint, you know, on the top of the shoulder? Uh, that's where an x-ray, a screening x-ray can be really helpful. You know, x-ray is a really basic uh, tool, a blunt instrument, but it can give us a lot of good information right off the bat. We can see arthritis, even early arthritis uh, happening sometimes on x-ray. Uh, we can't see the soft tissues. And so if the x-rays look normal, and the patient has gradually worsening uh, shoulder pain, um, you know, that's where we start to think maybe there's an issue with the rotator cuff or the soft tissues in the joint. Um, with traumatic tears, you know, we're, we're thinking, okay, so we've clearly done some structural damage and we got to start to figure that out. And that's where for both those types of patients, physical exam comes in. So after I listen to the patient, I then have the patient stand up and we take a look at the shoulder and sort of observe looking for things like atrophy um, and, uh, uh, you know, things like that to just sort of look at subtle differences in how the shoulder is looking at some patients will come in and their shoulder is up to here because their, their neck muscles or trapezius muscles are so tight. They've been holding it in pain like this for, you know, two months. Uh, other patients, it'll be kind of dropped down. It'll be a little bit uh, lax. Um, so just looking is really important. And then we kind of assess uh, what kind of range of motion we have. So stiffness can be a real clue as to what can be going on. If we see a really stiff shoulder where we feel a lot of cracking, popping, grinding, you know, that can be a clue, especially with an x-ray that matches up to it, that arthritis might be an issue. Um, if the shoulder is stiff, 
in a way that I can passively move it, but the patient cannot. They have weakness. Uh, you know, we assess strength. And so assessing the rotator cuff strength is a big part of that. If I'm able to raise the patient's arm up overhead, but the patient can't get up to shoulder height, that's an indication. Clearly, something's going on with the with the muscles that control the movement of the shoulder. And um, and we're going to start thinking about, is the rotator cuff involved? Um, so when do you drive that, you know, to the MRI? So that's a common question we get is, you know, when should I get an MRI? What's your thoughts, thought, you know, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm much quicker to get an MRI with a story of a trauma, you know, a fall, uh, or, or not necessarily even a fall or a trauma, like it doesn't have to be a car accident. It could just be, hey, I was lifting, I was doing fine, but I lifted up a heavy suitcase and I felt something go. You know, I felt a, a pop or a tear or a crunch. Um, those patients, I'm a little quicker to say, I'm, I'm pretty convinced there's a good story for a rotator cuff tear. Let's see on the MRI what that looks like, um, especially if it's been a few weeks, especially if there's weakness on physical exam. Um, you know, pain alone doesn't really determine it, you know, because pain, pain can be kind of all over the place. Some guys will have a ton of pain, the rotator cuff doesn't look that bad. Other people, they say, geez, it doesn't hurt that much. We get the MRI and it looks awful, you know. Um, but uh, so pain can be kind of difficult to, to use that. But I think the story uh, and then the physical exam, if, if they show real weakness on the physical exam, I'm, I'm going to be pretty quick to get an MRI. No, that's great. And I think it's funny because we talk about MRIs with low back pain and how there's such poor correlation with causation of symptoms, right? But yeah. what is your feeling with the MRI and the shoulder? Well, the MRI is a really useful tool in the shoulder. It, it can really uh, show us in a lot of detail what we're looking at for the rotator cuff. And, you know, I think that there are some things, subtle things that can be missed on MRI where the MRI, uh, you know, can sort of undercall or overcall certain injuries to the rotator cuff, especially when we're talking about partial tears. Um, it seems like almost every shoulder MRI I order will have some degree of injury to the rotator cuff on it. You know, even if it's just tendonitis, tendinosis, thickening of the tendon, inflammation of the tendon. I think the radiologists, and, and we do too, have a little bit of a hard time distinguishing low-grade partial tears of the rotator cuff to just a strain or, or some tendonitis. But the MRI is going to show us really clearly if the rotator cuff, which attaches onto the top of the that rotator cuff is off, we're going to see that very clearly and, and right away. And that person immediately, you're thinking surgical candidate. Not necessarily. So the, the, it becomes a little bit more interesting at that point. So if there's a full thickness rotator cuff tear where the cuff is off the bone, even if it's only off the bone, say in part of the cuff, you know, there's part of it still attached, but part of it's off. Then we look at some patient specific characteristics. I, I think I said this to you early, not all rotator cuff tears are created equal. And even full thickness tears in an older degenerative kind of tear, that can do very well with no surgery. And you know, there's a growing body of evidence, especially in the last kind of eight years or so, uh, we're kind of learning that the, the story is really important. So these degenerative tears, even when they're full thickness, if they've been there for a while and the muscles kind of atrophied, you know, the cuff has probably been torn for years. Maybe they come in to see me because, or you more painful recently, but the tear has been around for maybe a few years or more. Those patients actually do really well with non-operative, non-surgical treatment. Um, now, if it's the 45-year-old guy who fell off his motorcycle and has a full thickness tear, 
clearly I'm much more going to, I'm more quickly going to talk to him about surgery. Cause I think that's where we see surgery make the biggest difference in um, slightly younger, healthier, traumatic tears. Uh, no, that's great. You know, I think when, you, when I think about full thickness cuff tears, you know, my brain goes to that positive drop arm or the ER lag sign, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, when I, you know, sometimes we rehab people for six months, they get, they get better or three to six months. And then a year or two later, they go back, they go get an MRI and it's a full thickness tear. And they're like, oh my gosh, I had this full thickness tear the entire time, but I had no symptoms, you know, because we're treating shoulder blade mobility. You're treating everything. You're treating the whole yeah. D. You know, I think it's really interesting, Phil, because it's, everybody's different. You know, and yes. I think if you can yeah. touch on, you know, I think most people hear from their surgeon, you know, I have a full thickness tear and they come in to me and they're like, you know, there's nothing you can do, Sean, you know, I've got a full thickness tear. I'm going to need surgery. <laughs> yeah. My doctor just wants me to come see you just to cross T's and dot I's. Like that yeah. is sometimes what people say. I know. Um, what's your, how do you kind of motivate, how do you educate your patients to say, listen, um, you know, give this thing a try. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be a challenge sometimes. And I, I have definitely had tough conversations with patients who are convinced that they just want me to go in and fix it because they just don't like the idea that their cuff is torn. Um, but I have had many, many patients who have full thickness tears with total atrophy of the muscle um, and with physical therapy and sometimes a cortisone injection. And we can talk about that too in a minute, but um, they can do very well. And is it's really all about shoulder function you know it's not about what you see on the mri we don't we don't treat the mri we treat the person and so uh if the person if the patient has shoulder dysfunction if they have a full thickness tear they can't lift their arm up to wash their hair or uh they can't reach up a little bit to put something in the microwave that's a problem you know and and that's something that it's my job then to try to figure out how do we get them better it's your job too (laughs) sometimes uh and but if they're if they have a full thickness tear, they don't have a lot of pain, and they're able to reach up overhead, which I have seen many guys be able to do. Um, we don't have to do anything, and you know you can strengthen the deltoid, the bigger muscles around the shoulder to support the shoulder. And there's a lot of guys out there that just don't have a rotator cuff at all and are doing really fine, um, especially guys that are a little older. So I mean, there's been some studies to show that guys over 65 guys and women uh, over 65, there's 20% of people just walking around, no rotator cuff. Right. Uh, right. And people over 80, it's like 80% don't have a rotator cuff. So yeah. the stats that I have, 50% over 60 are living yeah. with a cuff tear, whether it's partial or full. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then 50% of those go on to become full thickness rotator cuff tears. Right. Um, again, I mean, you're exactly right. So it's how are people presenting? And I think the importance of observation and inspection right? Upon physical exam is huge. Yes, absolutely. So that's great. I think people need to hear that because sometimes they hear full thickness tear and their brain stops and they say, okay, yeah. I'm going to keep searching for somebody who's going to do the surgery because it's just torn, you know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Part of it's the easier availability of MRI, you know, in the last 20 years, it's much easier to get an MRI than it was when my father started in practice. And I mean, you know, when he started MRIs were a new technology, but, uh, and certainly with my grandfather, they didn't have MRI at all. So, you know, there were guys always women and, and guys out there all over the place that had a rotator cuff injuries and did just fine without any surgery. And it wasn't maybe even recognized. I think it's better now. We clearly know knowledge is better. I mean, we can know more about what's happening in the shoulder and be able to counsel patients more realistically. 
Uh, so I'm happy we can get MRIs now, but, uh, but it's not always necessary to jump to a surgery for sure. And, and that's where physical therapy and the importance of therapy really comes in. Right. So we talked about the webinar um, a couple hours ago, we talked about the importance of pre-op PT. So what do you see, you know, do you, I don't, do you send your patients for pre-op PT if you're doing a cuff? Uh, not every time, but certainly if there's stiffness, um, I will, I will very much consider sending them to physical therapy preoperatively. Um, it also depends a little bit on some patient characteristics, like, uh, sometimes even just patient personality. If the patient expresses an interest in wanting to do some PT to kind of get engaged with the therapist before, um, I'm very willing to do that. Uh, if the patient, it seems apprehensive about the physical therapy afterwards, a lot of times, even just going for two or three visits beforehand uh, to establish the rapport between the therapist and the patient can be really helpful. They know the, the building, they know the parking lot, they know they can get there easily. They, they, have a, they can communicate with you a little bit better. So I think there's some real value in that. Um, it's probably an area that I should, I should probably do more often, to be honest with you. You know, it's important, Phil, you know, so that rapport is huge, right? So my feeling is that you're not going to work with somebody whom you don't like, right? So that's number one. You have to find somebody who's going to, you know, who you're going to be able to work with, especially through a cuff repair. I mean, that's, that's a six month, you know, relationship at least, you know, because yeah, yeah. months of intense, you're not strengthening until week 12. But I think right. another point, you know, and this is, you know, your office and, you know, the physical therapy um, offices can be referred to is the education part, right? So like, when can I shower? When can I do all the things, you know, when can I lift up a weight away from my body? You know, like when can I lift my, how long is the sling going to be on? Yeah. Uh, so if you want to touch on some of the education points so people are, you know, in a lot of shoulder pain, I think there's a huge fear barrier too, is that sometimes people are afraid to come see me or you because they're going to be, they think they're going to be told they need either three months of PT or a rotator cuff repair. Like, I guess touch on, you know, what expectations, you know, like the pain and all that stuff, what people should expect if they're going to have a shoulder surgery or shoulder. Yeah. Repair. So once, once the decision has been made and we're going to do a surgery, um, you know, that that's when we start to talk about, you know, what to expect around the time of surgery and what to expect afterwards. Shoulder surgery is tough. It, it's, it's definitely uh, one of the more, you know, kind of difficult to get through in the first week to two weeks kind of time frame of many of my surgeries. I mean, you know, joint replacement is kind of a different ball of wax. Arthroscopy for the knees tends to be really easy. Shoulder arthroscopy, when we're doing a rotator cuff tear, what we're often doing in the repair is uh, sewing the, the rotator cuff back down to the bone with sutures that are attached to anchors. And the anchors are like little plastic screws that go into the bone. And so we're, we're uh, punching little holes in the bone and putting screws in there. And so anytime we're doing some bony work, uh, it's sore afterwards for sure. A lot of times patients in the first day or two afterwards, they get some rebound pain as the nerve block that the anesthesiologists do wears off. They get some, some more significant pain in the first day or two. But we always give patients some, some pain medicine uh, to get through those first few rocky days, you know, maybe a week to, to even two weeks sometimes. And I think generally speaking, by the time patients get through the first week, they're seeing that things are kind of turning a corner. The pain is starting to come down. By the time they see me in the office at about two weeks after surgery, usually the pain is really manageable. It's, it's under control. It might still be quite sore, but it's uh, reasonable. Sleeping, very difficult after surgery. It's almost impossible to lay flat in the first two, three weeks after the surgery. And I, I usually counsel my patients to um, 
prop up a lot of pillows behind them and sort of sleep in sort of almost a reclining type position in bed or actually sleep in a recliner. And that can be helpful. Yeah. Um, sleeping can be one of the biggest components. What's that? Making sure they don't extend their arm, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, patients worry a lot about when they're sleeping, you know, and position of their arm. I, I think that's something uh, to, to be careful about, you know, sleeping on that shoulder. Not so much that you can do damage, just that it's going to make it more sore. Okay. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, so then the sling wear too. So generally when we're doing a rotator cuff repair, you're going to be in a sling for about four to six weeks. Um, and I tell my patients that you should wear the sling when you're up and moving around. It does not have to be on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I, I want them to come out of the sling two to three times a day, no matter what, to let the elbow straighten out all the way move the wrist and fingers, and usually day one after surgery, starting pendulum exercises, where we just kind of let the arm dangle and then kind of swing the shoulder back and forth with gravity. Um, this is kind of in that time frame as the incisions are healing before they get to see you. Hopefully around two weeks, they're starting to see you anyway, and then you're really gonna get some good feedback on what to do next with them, uh, as far as the exercises and stretches that you can do. Right. Um, but yeah, it's. It's a long haul. It, the shoulder rotator cuff repair surgery is definitely a long haul. I tell my patients, expect four to six months of a recovery until you're getting back to most of the normal things you think you should be doing. Uh, it might still be sore, even at six months, uh, with certain movements, uh, especially with the larger tears, You know what we call a large or massive uh, rotator cuff tears, where the whole rotator cuff is completely torn off. Yep. Um, those are hard. They, they take a long time to heal. And, uh, and there's definitely some, some issues with strength sometimes permanently afterwards. I, I usually do tell my patients for expectations and managing expectations is a really important thing. I tell them, I would not expect this shoulder to be restored to its like 18 year old self, you know, back before you had anything wrong with the shoulder, just a brand new shoulder really at any point after a shoulder surgery like this. It's a big surgery, it's a big injury. We should have a reasonable goal of restoring function and reducing pain, but I, it's not like you're gonna have, be able to throw a fastball, you know, or, you know, be able to reach up and block a shot in basketball with your arms straight up in the air. That's, that would be really hard, even after a very successful rotator cuff repair. Some people, maybe, you know, maybe there's 10% that are gonna be able to do everything, including throw a baseball, but, um, most people are going to say, Hey, my shoulder, I can now reach up or overhead. Well, I can get, so I can touch the top of my head easily. I can reach up on a shelf. Um, most people will still say, I, I know that's a shoulder that's had some work done on it and I can feel it on certain days with certain movements. Yeah. I think that's great. You know, I think it's a big fear point is people don't know what the outcome is going to be, you know, yeah. so they never even take that first step. Yeah. Um, when is the tenon most vulnerable after repair? Well, generally in the first three months, um, you know, during the first 12 weeks, uh, the tendon, I mean, basically we're, what we're trying to do in the surgery is take a torn tendon, stick it onto the bone and expect it to kind of heal into one piece. Like if the bone's supposed to, or the tendon is supposed to attach to the bone. It does eventually it can do that. Um, but it takes some time. And during that phase of the first three months, if we're pulling on that tendon repeatedly, especially with some real force, um, and by pulling, I mean firing the rotator cuff muscles to pull on the tendon, not necessarily the passive range of motion stretching that you guys do, uh, but the, the actual active movement of the muscle 
you can disrupt healing and, and, and affect that. Certainly, I've had patients that have fallen during the first three months and have retorn. You know, the the sutures can only hold so much. The sutures and the anchors are really solid. The, the suture is called fiber wire or fiber tape. It's, it's very strong woven cord. Um, the tissue is the weak point. And so sometimes the tendon is just uh, not of a sufficient quality to hold on. And so the, the sutures will be still there and the tendon will be gone. Uh, and that sometimes can happen. Retears definitely do happen. Yeah, so I mean, that's I think a key point too for us in rehab is you know, everybody's kind of got a little, you know, you get that general guide, right? So you get your rotator cuff repair protocol, but, you know, I think not all repair, you know, not all rehab is made equal either. You know, and I see, you know some PTs starting closed chain isometrics pretty early, you know, open chain isometrics pretty early. You know, I'm not super worried. I was never worried about that too much, just getting the cuff kind of a little bit engaged. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think a big fear was just actually, you know, if the patient inadvertently performed the action of the muscle, right? So you do yeah. a super repair and they lift their they're putting their sling on you know and they lift their shoulder away from their body and they experience pain and all of a sudden the next 24 this has happened probably at least 10 times oh yeah they'll lift their shoulder away from the, trying to and it's just inadvertent because it's something they've been doing for their entire lives of course. And, you know they're worried that they retore their cuff um what would you tell that patient I, generally i i tell them for those types of movements don't worry too much it's it, you might make it sore uh you might have stressed the repair a little bit but but normal mild movements especially putting the sling on getting dressed um you know generally speaking especially when the soreness kind of resolves over a day or two that's normal and it's not too concerning it's not it, it takes some it takes something usually to, to really tear, re-tear the, the repair um, or to, to wreck the repair. You know, it, it doesn't just fall apart on its own. Now, <laughs> there are some that are going to fall apart on their own no matter what happens. And that's the unfortunate reality of like, especially the massive rotator cuff tears, especially the chronic tears, you know, that we try to repair because of this dysfunction of the shoulder. Sometimes the tendon quality is so poor that it, there's not much that we can do. We, we pull it over, but there's nothing that's going to make that heal. But either way, the patient shouldn't worry about that. And that's that's where, you know, there's going to be some soreness and some episodes where if you move it a little bit the wrong way, it will be sore, but that doesn't mean you've done major damage. Great, great. Um, how often are you, you find yourself doing like a biceps tenodesis, you know, cleaning up the underside of the acromion? Like, do you see that pretty concomitantly with the rotator cuff tears? Yeah, not every time. I, uh, chromioplasty or cleaning up the acromion, which is you know basically shaving off or smoothing out a bone spur in that area, is uh, often necessary, but not always. And there's been some studies to show that just doing it automatically for everybody is not necessary. I really try to take a look at the shape of the bone, and if there is a spur that's kind of uh, pinching down on the rotator cuff, I will, at that point, smooth that out with a shaver and open up the space. We call that a decompression. Um, do you find that often? Uh, yeah, I, I would say, I would say we, yeah, I would say often, I think it's, uh, maybe 50%, um, of the time, maybe slightly less, but around, somewhere around there, so maybe 40%. Do you think it's genetic, like the type two, type three, or do you think it's more like Wolf's law from bad impingement for a long period of time and bad mechanics? I, I think it could be both. Um, there's definitely some people who have, um, you know, just a hook shaped acromion that, that they were born that way. They're kind of a setup for rotator cuff problems because of that. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that we can recognize even on x-ray. Other people, especially slightly older people are going to actually develop a bone spur, an actual spur where you get extra bone forming on the very edge 
that's going to really grab and pinch on that rotator cuff. And um, so we, when we get in there, you can almost tell like if the, if the acromion has that kind of hook shape, um, it's apparent. If it's more of a, of a spur, a degenerative spur, it has a different look to it. And it's going to be a little bit of a sharper corner. And um, either way, we can open that up and, and improve the space for the, ro for the rotator cuff. Right. Um, biceps tenodesis, interesting question. Uh, you know, that is when, so when we move the biceps tendon away from its anchor point on the superior labrum, the biceps tendon is that bicep of the long head of the bicep that comes in. The bicep has two heads. There's the long head that comes as a long, thin cord into the front of the shoulder. The short head goes kind of into a little bit the chest. The long head as a thin cord kind of goes up and over the corner. That's a very vulnerable kind of structure. It's kind of like a rope that goes over the corner of a box. That can get damaged, frayed, partially torn. It can get damaged at the time of the rotator cuff injury. It can have degenerative changes. Um, and so if the biceps tendon looks beat up, damaged, uh, and uh, potentially a cause of pain, we're going to remove the biceps tendon from where it's normally attached and anchor it into a different spot. Um, the other reason to do that would be for a labral tear. So if the superior labrum is damaged or torn, we take the stress off that area by removing the biceps tendon and clean up the labral tear by smoothing that out with a shaver. And um, biceps tendon, uh, you know, tenodesis anchoring that biceps tendon can sometimes change the look of the bicep a bit. Um, and a lot of people, especially somewhat older people, uh, will just cut the biceps tendon and we won't anchor it anywhere. We just let it go. A lot of people have a lot of questions about that. They're apprehensive about that. They don't like the idea of, of just cutting the biceps tendon. They think, well, I must need it. Uh, but the fact is you get two heads of the bicep. It cosmetically changes the look of the muscle and it can sometimes cause some crampiness, especially in the first couple of months. But eventually, there's not much of a strength difference. I mean, if you're a construction worker, if you're a laborer that uses your shoulders and arms a lot, you might notice some strength difference. Most people in day-to-day -day life are not going to notice any strength difference in their ability to do this movement or do the forearm movements that the bicep does. But the story I always tell is that Brett Favre and John Elway both had their biceps tendons cut, tenotomized, not Tina Deist, uh, during their NFL careers on their throwing shoulder uh, and just for chronic biceps tendonitis. And they both continue to be able to throw really well. So um, you don't really need to have that biceps tendon, uh, you know, all the time. Just an aside, you have to watch the YouTube video of Tony Romo doing the impressions of Tom Brady, uh, Aaron Rodgers, and um, Brett Favre. It's just- I heard about it and I, I, I have a meaning to watch it and I definitely will now. It's pure gold. I'm gonna send it to you after this. It's yeah, a, yeah. Classic run and gun. He's like a, like a cowboy, Brett Favre. He's yeah. like, um, let's talk about, no, that's great. You know, I think, you know, especially the, the bicep tendon, you know, anytime there's a slap, you know, any slap kind of, you know, you're doing, you know, we're doing our testing, you know, and sometimes you just know any pain, like up here in the ER, you get like a, a pitcher or something. I kind of know something's going on, pain with throwing. Yeah, yeah. Um, O'Brien's test too, you know, that kind of test like this where, you know, you get a lot of pain in the front with that kind of doing this kind of movement. Yeah, and, and sometimes I just make up, like I got a test where I literally made it up and just put that biceps on full, you know, full blast, full extension and try to pull yeah. through. Um, you know, and just different things like clinically that I, you know, I kind of put together, but, you know, I think, um, you know, that's kind of tough. And, and a lot of, uh, slaps will do, do well in PT, but, uh, let's talk about, um, you know, the, the role of the cortisone shot. 
And, you know, that's always, especially with the overhead athletes, yeah. um, in season, out of season, talk to me about your approach, you know, when you're hitting younger athletes, what the age, like what's going through your brain when you're like, okay, this person's not getting better with John or at PT, Sean's frustrated, you know, not really, we don't want to do surgery. What's next? Like what goes through your mind for that person? Yeah, that's a great question. So, well, first of all, cortisone, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of myths about cortisone out there. Cortisone is a steroid, uh, corticosteroid, not like the baseball player steroid. Um, and it's just a very strong anti-inflammatory. So it's not a numbing medicine, although we often put a little numbing medicine in with it just to make the injection a little bit more comfortable. Um, it, but it doesn't just sort of numb your shoulder to all pain. A lot of patients are afraid that they're going to get a cortisone shot. They're not going to feel their shoulder and they're going to do more damage. I don't really see that ever happen. It, when patients uh, are going to be doing damage to their shoulder, they're going to feel it. The, the cortisone is not that strong. It's not going to make your shoulder feel bionic. Um, other things that people worry about are uh, it doing damage to the shoulder. Now, uh, there is some evidence that repeated cortisone shots, you know, many times over can start to damage, especially the, the cartilage in the joint, the surface cartilage. Some of that may be from the numbing medicine that we use, the lidocaine and marcaine, that can be toxic to the site of the, the cells of the cartilage. Um, but if we space out injections appropriately, usually no sooner than three months into a joint, um, you know, if we space it out by at least three months, you know, cortisone really tends to be very safe and effective for most people. Um, you know, and some people it doesn't work as well. You know, who knows why? It just some people may be resistant to it. Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's the other thing is pain. The people are very worried about the, the injections being painful. Uh, in my experience, you know, injections of cortisone into the hands and feet very painful. Uh, I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat it. It's, it's the, the hands and feet are loaded with nerve endings. We feel the world with our hands and feet and fingers. If you get an injection in your hand, it, it's going to hurt a bit. Now, the shoulder and your knee, especially, and around your hip, not that painful typically. Most people are really, they, um, especially with the knee, but also really with the shoulder, they often say, oh, geez, I was expecting much worse. Uh, shoulder ones in particular, people often say flu shots are more painful uh, because we're putting the medicine into an open space. It's not going into your muscle or into the bone. We're not injecting the bone. Uh, if you're hitting the bone a lot, you're doing it wrong. Um, so we're putting into that space where there's room for the medicine to go. And if you get a nice feel and it doesn't have any resistance when we're putting it in, we know we're in that right space. And the idea is just to bring down inflammation in that area. Cortisone can be really helpful for things like biceps tendonitis, for sure. Um, that can sometimes be done in the office just blindly if we have a good sense of where to go. Sometimes it's done uh, with a radiologist uh, under ultrasound guidance to make sure we get it into the biceps tendon sheath, you know, very specific location. Cortisone works great for things like bursitis. And so the bursa is sort of a cushion tissue on top of the rotator cuff. Sometimes patients have really intense shoulder pain uh, that comes about somewhat suddenly, uh, not usually associated with an injury, but just out of the blue, they start to have tons of shoulder pain to the point where they can't even lift their shoulder. And you think, geez, the rotator cuff must be something going on there. X-rays, MRI may show rotator cuff looks completely normal. Um, and that usually is what we're talking about is bursitis. The bursa can get very inflamed very quickly 
There's not a lot of room. It's in a narrow envelope of space. It can swell and cause a ton of intense pain that, that can really cause a, a lot of dysfunction. Cortisone into the bursa there, very safe, brings down the inflammation, can make the problem go away, and can often cure the issue, like really just make it completely go away. Um, so that's where cortisone is like the most satisfying. When you pay, have a patient that you know has bursitis, you give them a cortisone shot, four days later, they're like a new person. Um, so clinically, what, do you, what makes you like almost like 90% sure or above that they've got a bursitis and nothing else nefarious? Or they could, yeah, so, obviously something else could be going on, but like what makes your brain go to? Yeah, so especially slightly younger person. So people in their 30s and 40s uh, or 50s, but definitely 30s and 40s with no history of an injury or fall um, with sort of a sudden onset of intense shoulder pain. And then when we do some rotator cuff strength testing, the rotator cuff actually feels pretty good. Like they have good lift off, they have good rotational strength. It seems like the cuff is there. It's strong. It's intact. There's no injury. Like if you're 35, you don't, you're not going to get a degenerative rotator cuff tear that's just going to fall apart on its own. It's going to take some force to rip it off. So if you suddenly get a ton of shoulder pain, it's probably not a rotator cuff tear. It's probably bursitis. That's great. I mean, you see a lot of CrossFit athletes right next door. Yeah. Over and, you know, I feel like, you know, we talk about tendonitis versus tendinosis. But the bursitis piece is, is hard, you know, and typically what I, what I coach, and you can tell me um, if this is good or not, but I'll say take 10 days of, you know, ibuprofen or, you know, do, a, do an acute bout of ibuprofen. And if yes. it's an inflammatory process, that'll solve your itis or your, you know, whether it's tendonitis or it's a bursitis problem, let's try that. But mo more than, more likely than not, if you're doing powerlifting, you know, for five years yeah. now, there's probably some changes, um, some tendon changes going on. In this Absolutely. The, you know, again, I see a lot of patients who say they really aren't pill people or they don't want to take anti-inflammatory medicine because they just don't like taking Advil, just sort of the idea of taking Advil or ibuprofen or naproxen. But a lot of these inflammatory conditions with no structural damage, just the tissues are inflamed can really be helped by just a 10-day course of taking ibuprofen or naproxen very steadily. And that's Advil or Aleve. And you can pick either one. They're about the same. It's like Coke and Pepsi. Um, you know, they, that can really knock down the inflammation and make the problem go away. And it's not numbing anything. It's actually an anti-inflammatory. So it's getting to the root of the problem. So it's not sort of masking the pain the way a narcotic oxycodone kind of medicine would do. That would, that's masking the pain. An anti-inflammatory is treating the source of the problem. And then that gives me a chance to calm that the symptoms down so that I can fix a mechanical 3D problem that's causing it in the first place. Yes. Or internal rotation uh, and the movement deficits. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about adhesive capsulitis. Yeah. So frozen shoulder. Enemy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hate frozen shoulders. The thing that I, I, I do too. I do too. They're hard. I mean, they're really hard to treat and um, they're, they're really hard to talk to patients about too, because it's uh, it's a challenging problem for everybody. So frozen shoulder, often uh, the, the way people talk about it, it's also called adhesive capsulitis. It's, it can happen for no particular reason. We sometimes have no story of an injury or a trauma to the shoulder. There is a correlation or association with diabetes. So patients that are diabetic have a much increased risk of having a frozen shoulder, but we don't really understand why. Interestingly, um, the joint, the shoulder joint and all of our joints have a joint capsule and it's sort of a wall around our joint. 
that's what holds in the joint fluid that allows the joint to glide and move nicely. For whatever reason, that capsule is very inflamed, thickened, and locked down, and it gets very tight. There's sort of three phases of frozen shoulder. It starts with an inflammatory phase where it gets very painful. It almost feels like a bursitis, but it might be even worse than that. Uh, it starts to get stiff, but you can still move it. Um, then the pain usually kind of starts to settle down. That inflammatory phase may last months. Um, and especially if patients don't see a doctor, it can go on for, for six months or more. Um, then the inflammatory part of it kind of settles down. It becomes much less painful and it just becomes frozen and it is really stiff. And we're talking not just like you can't reach all the way up, but actually like you can't reach, it's hard to sometimes reach your mouth to eat. Like it's, it, you can't lift more than 30 degrees sometimes. It's very tight in rotation. So it becomes impossible to reach behind your back. You know, you can might be able to get to your pocket, but that's it. Reaching out to the side also, you know, very tight out to the side. Um, sometimes patients can only get to, to neutral. You know, they can't even get out to the side at all. Then eventually it thaws. And so the third phase is when things start to loosen up on their own. And the natural course of frozen shoulder is that it eventually, and almost everybody, will get better. And uh, the problem is that it may take anywhere from a year to two years for that to happen. On average, I think it's about 18 months. Um, now, there are certain things that you and I can do to help patients try to hustle that along a little bit. I think there is also opportunities at the beginning to sort of nip it in the bud. And so if you catch it really early uh, in the inflammatory phase, I think cortisone uh, certainly has been shown in studies to, to be able to shorten the course of the frozen shoulder and, and uh, get it to be much less painful. And then with the help sometimes of physical therapy, you can kind of regain your motion and, and really shorten up the time frame, uh, And so that can be done. Then, you know, finally, there are surgeries that can be done for this. Um, you know, and I, I have an honest conversation with patients about this. And, and many of my patients say, you know what, it's been bad for a year. I can, I can live with it for another six to 12 months. It's not that, if it's their non-dominant side, especially, they say, well, I'm not I'm not a construction worker. I'm not a carpenter or a painter. I don't really need to be reaching overhead that much. I've been kind of living with it for a year. I can kind of live with it for a little longer, especially when it's not painful. But when patients are having uh, stiffness that affects their ability to just do activities of daily living, getting dressed, eating, you know, that kind of stuff, then sometimes we'll actually go in and do a capsulotomy and uh, arthroscopically cut the capsule from the inside and then right afterwards, do a manipulation of the shoulder under anesthesia while the patient's asleep and comfortable. We'll stretch the shoulder somewhat aggressively, breaking up scar tissue, breaking up the capsule, and get it to stretch all the way. And then the day after that, we get them in to see you guys to see a physical therapist to really continue to work on stretching and kind of maintain that uh, range of motion if we can. So that to me is so tough, Phil, because... You know, what you're doing, especially during surgery, if you're doing a capsulotomy and you're doing an MUA, like that's causing inflammation, you know, and it's, it's, it's a positive feedback cycle of inflammation anyways, that's causing the whole, so that's where for us, it's, you know, it's always, my mind has always been, um, you know, not blown by this diagnosis, but it's just so frustrating because sometimes you push somebody a little bit too far into ERIR, whatever, horizontal yeah. And it's like the next day they can't move. <laughs> and you're, yeah, yeah. I will say, you know, I, I don't do that surgery very often. Um, you know, I, I, 
I do them once in a while, but it's not, I, I, it's probably a small percentage of the frozen shoulders that I see will end up needing surgery or wanting surgery. Um, yeah, it is. It's very counterintuitive. I think, you know, in the first six weeks, usually their range of motion is not much better right after the manipulation and the surgery. They, they often start to feel a lot better. They're a little less painful. They can, they feel like they're moving better. Uh, but when you measure them, they don't actually move that much better. Um, it's usually more like three months later. You, you do see that the course is, is shortened a bit and they can start to move maybe a little quicker. It's controversial. Not, some surgeons uh, don't believe in it and they will not even offer that to patients. They say there's no reason to do a surgery. This is going to get better on its own. It may take two years, but I'm not risking complications of surgery, uh, you know, infection, um, worsening stiffness. Um, you know, anesthesia carries its own risks. And so going under anesthesia uh, can be somewhat risky. And that's where it depends on the patient a little bit. And, um, you know, and that's, that's the conversation you have to have. And that's great. You know, I think, and the big thing is just pain, you know, pain control. And I think that's always, you know, the function is one thing. Everybody wants to have their function back, but you can't live life if you're in a seven or eight out of 10 pain every <laughs> single day. That's just crippling. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. The shoulder, especially when it's painful, affects everything. Um, you know, everything you do, you don't realize how much you use your shoulder, especially with your dominant arm, you know, just opening a door, getting food out of the fridge, getting dressed, showering, all these things involve significant shoulder movement. And, um, and it can be very debilitating. Right. I mean, even think about going to the gym, you know, you're pretty much cutting out almost half of your, half of yeah. your workout, you know, and I think that's, it's tough for people who are trying to stay healthy, stay in shape. And, um, yeah, absolutely. It can be debilitating, but, uh, what else haven't we touched on? I feel like we've talked about a lot. Um, instability, maybe we could talk about shoulder instability. Um, you know, that can be a big topic. We, that's, that's something where I feel like we as surgeons really have, uh, an opportunity to make patients better. Um, and it can be a very satisfying surgery. Shoulder instability is when your shoulder wants to come out of the joint. And so uh, often starts with a dislocation when often when people are younger, um, you know, late teens, 20s, guys can be playing sports, they either football, basketball, whatever, or it can just be from, you know, falling on the ice or something like that. If you dislocate the shoulder, the ball comes out of the socket um, or it just almost comes out of the socket and goes right back in. We call that a subluxation. Anytime that's done, you can damage the labrum. The labrum is that kind of rim of tissue around the edge of the cup. It acts like a bumper. And when the shoulder comes out, it knocks the edge off the labrum. And so what happens is that every time you reproduce that movement of, especially if it comes out the traditional way, which is out to the front, you damage the front part of the labrum. Every time you do something like this or reach to the side, we rotate the humerus on the cup, the glenoid, and it can slide out of place or feel like it's about to slide out of place again. And so that feeling of it almost coming out or about to come out or actually coming out um, is bad. It hurts. It causes problems afterwards. It might hurt for a few days. Um, sometimes it only hurts for a few hours, but it's not a good feeling. People know right away that almost came out and it doesn't feel good. And it can really limit you. How often do you see fractures with uh, um, dislocations? You know, they happen for sure. I would say it's a minority, maybe 10, 10%, maybe 15% of the time we're seeing small fractures of the rim of the glenoid. Now at trauma centers like UMass, uh, you know, uh, bigger places that take a lot of trauma off 
higher energy trauma, car accidents, things like that, uh, falls from height, you know, falling off a ladder or a roof or something, you might see that more often. Um, if it's a small sliver of bone, that's something that we, we treat basically just like a soft tissue injury. If it's a big chunk of the bone, that sometimes needs a real surgery kind of earlier on right away to repair that. Um, and that can be a bigger process. That's actually a kind of usually more of an open surgery, um, sometimes arthroscopic, but, but often open where they have to put that piece back in, in place. Yeah. Um, Do you see it at the, at the glenoid or at the humeral head, the fractures? I'm talking about the glenoid. So on the humeral head, often we'll see a dent on the backside of the humerus called the Hill Sachs lesion. And that can definitely also lead to more instability. If there's a dent there, it kind of wants to go back into that dent. Um, and that's something that we can address in a surgery as well. We can't pop the dent out like, uh, you know, like if you have a dent in your car door, but we can sew some of the soft tissues into that dent called a remplissage procedure. And it kind of tightens up that area and prevents it from coming out of place. Really the, the thinking, the traditional thinking was if you have a young person that dislocates the shoulder, do some PT, get back your range of motion, your strength and see how it goes. And if it keeps coming out, then you do something about it. There's some shift in the thinking now where we're starting to offer the surgery a little bit earlier on in the process. And if you have a 18 or 22 year old who has a dislocation and a clear labral tear, we're often counseling patients that you might want to get it fixed right away um, and just repair the labrum back down to that area, re recreate the bumper. Yeah. And, um, and that patients seem to do very, very well with that. Um, so it's that, that basically we kind of tighten up the front of the shoulder and, and make it a much more stable shoulder and people can get back to playing sports. I usually tell people it's going to be about three months of rehab and recovery with working with a therapist after the surgery, but by about month four, we usually will allow people to get back to contact sports, including football. I've, I've done that procedure on wrestlers, you know, and wrestling is like the whole object of the sport is to like dislocate the guy's <laughs> joint. Um, so, and I've had guys able to go back to wrestling and sports like that. So that it can be a very successful and durable repair. That's so your tightening up that capsule. Yeah, anterior capsule kind of comes over and also the labrum. And so we, we kind of shore up the front of the shoulder that way. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, and I think you, you kind of know, at least in, in my setting, when people come direct access or I, I was telling you about uh, somebody came from next door, their shoulder was dislocated. Um, you kind of know, too, because if somebody's sitting there, you know, and their posture's here, you know, and a lot of the students, right? So the students come in, the kids come in and they're here. Their shoulder blades are stuck in IR, right? And, yeah, yeah. and then they've got an eight out of 10 biting because they're teenage girls. You know, they're probably going to have a second dislocation, you know, just from doing yeah. it. So that's somebody who I immediately send out. I'm like, you know what? You got to talk to Phil or somebody in sports medicine because it's just, you know, it's probably going to happen again. You're just loosey goosey and you're already, your shoulder joint, you know, your humerus is already sitting in the front end of the glenoid right. anyway. All right. it's going to take is like a little glide to get it out. So, yep. Yep. Um, you know, totally I think the postural observation, you know, you see people and you're just like, it's almost like that look test. You kind of look at them and, and you kind of know, you do a quick bite and you're like, okay, <laughs> joints, super hypermobile, you know, let's go see Phil, you know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> great. But uh, no, I think, I think we've touched on a lot. We did. We talked a lot about a lot of stuff. I hope we didn't overwhelm our, our audience. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, uh, let me just, let me just look here. Make sure that we uh, hit on everything. Da, 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 da. Yeah, we talked about a lot. 
No. So I think, is there anything uh, in summation, Phil, that you want to tell our audience or tell uh, any patients or prospective patients of? of um, well, you know, I think, uh, I guess I would just say that um, don't hesitate to, to talk to your therapist. Um, don't hesitate to talk to your doctor, uh, primary care, or if you have access to a specialist, you know, if you're having shoulder pain and um, you're worried about it, seek out you know, advice uh, from reliable people like like me and Sean and um, people who know what they were talking about. There are good uh, resources online, but you got to be careful. I think uh, orthoinfo.org from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery is very good. Um, the Mayo Clinic has a great uh, website for patients. Um, it's sort of, you know, easy, you know, the, we don't get too technical about the anatomy and the, you know, uh, remplissage procedures and things like that. They'll, you know, kind of just straight talk about what what's going on with your shoulder. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. And can people come see you directly, Phil, without a referral from primary care? You know, unfortunately, these days it totally depends on their insurance. So uh, many insurances, yes. And we take the vast majority of insurances out there. We probably take more insurance types than any other group in the area. Um, and so what I would encourage people to do is call because our staff is excellent at figuring out if you do need a referral or not. And they can even help to obtain the referral with you or for you. Um, and, you know, that may mean just calling the primary care office and just saying, hey, I want to see this doctor. Can I get a letter? Um, so the vast majority of the time, even if you do need a referral, it's not a big process to get that. And you can always start the process with our office and they can kind of guide you through Medicine and the healthcare world right now is very confusing. It's a labyrinth of different doctors and policies and insurance. It's very confusing very quickly, even for me. And so uh, that's where we really have, we have a wonderful staff at our office that can help uh, take care of that kind of stuff. That's great. You know, we were just, I was talking in my earlier webinar that, uh, you know, when you find a specialist and see a specialist first, if you're able, you know, depending on your insurance, um, you, you shorten the duration research shows that you shorten the duration of your care. Yeah. Um, you also spend less, less money because you're not going through. Um, yeah. So if you come, I think if you, first, if you can, first. yeah, if you can go see a specialist first, it's great. I mean, that's, that's an awesome opportunity and take advantage of that if your insurance allows it. Yeah. Um, and if, if I can just sort of plug our website and our, our, uh, our website is actually worcesterortho.com. Um, and uh, just spell ortho Worcester. Our phone number, if anybody needs it, is 508-755-0240. Um, and, uh, but you can look at us up online and a lot of ways to get in touch with us. That's great. Well, thanks so much uh, for your time today, Phil. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure all of our, uh, all of our patients do too. And uh, hey, have a wonderful Wednesday. And uh, thanks again for taking the time. Yeah, this was fun. I really enjoyed it. And um, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Awesome. My pleasure. All right, my friend. Talk All soon. Right.